Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners. I'm so glad you've tuned in for this episode so that we can discuss everything you never wanted to know about treating UTIs. I kid, but in all seriousness, we know that antimicrobial resistance is a growing threat in both human and veterinary medicine. And as such, discussions around the judicious use of antimicrobials and what that looks like are of increasing importance. This talk with Don Booth, sponsored by DECRA, was incredibly eye-opening, and I mean that literally. Thinking about antimicrobial resistance after this talk kept me up at night. Not really, but kind of, yes. Anyhow, let me not keep you in suspense any longer and tell you about Dr. Booth so we can get into our talk. Dr. Booth earned her DVM from Texas A&M University in 1980. After an internship at Auburn University, she returned to TAMU for a master's in physiology, residency in small animal internal medicine, and a fellowship and PhD in veterinary clinical pharmacology. She is among the first class of American College of Veterinary Clinical Pharmacology diplomates. In 1990, she joined the TAMU faculty, becoming a professor in 2003. She then joined the Auburn College of Veterinary Medicine, where she directs the Clinical Pharmacology Laboratory, which serves over 4,000 national and international practices and teaches first to fourth year students. She's mentored over 30 graduate students and residents, implemented as a PI over $1.75 million in research, authored or co-authored over 125 peer-reviewed scientific publications, two textbooks, and over 60 book chapters. Major awards include an Achievement Award in Teaching, the Jack Mara Scientific Achievement Award for Scientific Achievement, and at Auburn, Graduate Student Mentor Awards, the Zoetis Award for Excellence in Research, and most recently, an Auburn Alumni Professor and ACVCP Distinguished Service Award. She literally wrote the book on much of what we're talking about here. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. Today, I am back with Dr. Don Booth from Auburn University. We have met before talking on one of our vet to vet recordings, talking about antimicrobial stewardship and culture and susceptibility and the importance of using that appropriately. And today we're going to put it into practice a little bit and talk about UTIs and how to treat UTIs appropriately. So Dr. Booth, thank you so much for being back with me today. I'm pretty excited. Good, good. Me too. Me too. Because these are really hard to treat. They are. Absolutely. So let's start out with a case that you treated recently. We'll call him Willie, a four-year-old male neutered Weimaraner. So this is not a dog we would typically expect to have a UTI. Can you tell us a little bit about how Willie presented? By the time I come into Willie, he's actually represented for a second urinary tract infection. He presented to the original veterinarian with clinical signs consistent with the UTI. So the owners noted blood dripping from the tip of the penis. When queried about what was going on, they acknowledged that he was frequently urinating and actually seemed to be straining a little bit with urination and they just seemed uncomfortable. Which would be unusual in a middle-aged neutered male dog. Correct. 
One of the reasons I love Willie the wine mariner to talk about him is he exemplifies why I think urinary tract infections are among the hardest things to treat. Now, nicely, you're absolutely right. A red flag for Willie is that he's a young male dog. And so that should have been a clue to us that this may not be your standard uncomplicated UTI. It doesn't mean that we can't approach it initially that way, but in the back of our minds, we're gonna be thinking, okay, there may be something going on here. And I love that you brought that up because you said that you came into treating Willie on his re-presentation. How was he initially treated? What was kind of the diagnostic approach there? They approach this exactly how I would encourage anybody that feels like they're dealing with an uncomplicated UTI. Confirm, first of all, that there are clinical signs because the definition of a urinary tract infection, and let's all acknowledge we're talking about cystitis. So we're putting in the back of the, our minds pyelonephritis and other things, but we're talking here about the common presentation, which is cystitis. And so normally I would say if it's uncomplicated, and we can talk about how that's defined, then trying a single short course of amoxicillin or amoxicillin clavulinic acid makes perfect sense. I think that's a good idea. Let's go ahead and talk about what does constitute an uncomplicated UTI and where that would be appropriate. Because sometimes I feel like that's, that can be a hard line to walk of, you know, at what point do I start working it up? And at what point do I call this a single point in time and just treat empirically? And I think that's part of the reason I think urinary tract infections can be so difficult because frequently we just kind of clump all of these guys together and we don't step back and look at the individual risk factors that might complicate our therapeutic success. Each practitioner is probably going to have a different set of criteria that constitutes complicated. For me, anything that goes beyond a first-time urinary tract infection in a female dog without comorbidities is uncomplicated. And that's a whole bunch of stuff I just said. So comorbidities are really things that can include anything that requires, for example, a drug therapy. And the reason that I say that is we think about E. coli as our causative organism for UTI. We think about it being upset when it sees antibiotics, but what we really should understand is that this population of E. coli in the patient that's causing these clinical signs actually gets upset at a lot of things, and it'll get upset at a lot of drugs. And the example I like to give is fluoxetine, which a lot of patients are on some kind of behavior modifying drug, actually causes multidrug resistance in E. coli. It's because it doesn't like having to mess with these strange drugs. So one of the things that our listeners may not really appreciate is how important stepping back and asking what comorbidities are on board and how are they going to complicate my success for this treatment. Okay, I'm going to need a minute to like regroup my brain here. Like my head just exploded when you said fluoxetine. Like I usually feel like I'm good as long as I haven't reached for an antimicrobial. Yeah, and that's what we think about, but it makes perfect sense to me that when we reach for any drug, any bacteria in the body is going to be exposed to that, and it's not going to like them, and so it's going to do something to get rid of them. And just as an aside, one of the common mechanisms bacteria have to get rid of these strange compounds are efflux pumps, and these are little toilet bowls that sit on bacterial cell membranes to get rid of everything, and frequently that leads to multidrug resistance. Our fluorinated quinolones commonly cause that type of resistance. And it's one of the reasons 
I don't like using fluorinated quinolones empirically without the support of culture data. And when I do use them, regardless of what I'm treating, I'm always going to use the highest dose I possibly can because they're concentration dependent drugs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, if I wasn't scared of antimicrobial resistance before, like that just made me even more so. And it's a sobering problem that we really need to try and get a handle on. And the best way to start is at each individual patient. I love that. I love that. Taking an individual approach and really kind of assessing where to go with them. So let's go back to Willie. And did he initially respond to amoxicillin clavulinic? He did. He responded and clinical signs resolved and everybody was happy until about six months later. Oh my gosh. Like it's making me feel better about all the times I struggled to resolve a UTI. Cause these are, these are, that's the stuff of nightmares. It's not your fault. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> it's always nice when I have these talks and I don't walk away going, Ooh, I should have done that differently. Yeah. Okay. So you say that Willie responded and he was good for about six months. So what are you referring to there? Are you saying like his clinical signs resolved? Was it on UA culture and susceptibility, all of the above? Such a great question because it's all contingent on clinical signs. If you don't have clinical signs, you don't have a UTI. And so what we look for as far as response to our therapy, because E. coli grows so rapidly, if you've done your job and you've gotten enough of the right drug at the site of any infection, you should see your response within 24 hours, certainly 48 hours. And so if those clinical signs have gone, he does not have a UTI. In fact, I probably wouldn't even look again until clinical signs come back. And the reason I say that is if you look, to see how good a job you did, well, you shouldn't have to look. If the clinical signs are gone, you did a good job. But if you look because you're basing your good job on the presence of bacteria in the urine, well, the problem is if there's bacteria in the urine, you're gonna think you didn't do a good job and that's not the case if there's no clinical signs and you're gonna be tempted to treat and that's not what we want you to do. I love that. I wanna hear, hear that one more time. You said, if you don't have clinical signs, you don't have a UTI. So we need to stop chasing down. You know, we always talk about don't treat the number, treat the patient. And this is the perfect example of that. And I love how you use the word chasing down because what will happen eventually is if you do quote unquote, chase these down, you're going to find yourself chasing them down with these higher tier drugs that we really like to try not to use in our patient. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can think of some cases where I've ended up in that situation. And, and I will say most of them, I was dealing with clinical signs and things like that, but it can be really hard. So Willie responded, he was in the clear, but as we kind of alluded to earlier, he was back six months later. Of course he was, because this would be a really boring case if he wasn't. That's right. So he was back six months later with more clinical signs. Is that what happened? Yeah. And so now we have two red flags, right? We still got the male doggy, that hasn't changed. And he's still young and healthy, presumably, but now he's recurrent. And we could quibble about what recurrence means. We could quibble, does it mean persistence? Does it mean three months ago, six months ago? So I don't think that is really important. In fact, when we talk about the pathophysiology of UTI, what's important is that it's here again, because I think frequently what happens is we use an antibiotic, we clear the urine, 
But if we had not captured it in time, these organisms burrow into the uroepithelial cell of the bladder. They go to sleep because that's what they do when they get to be a large enough population. When they go to sleep, even if our antibiotic gets down there, it doesn't work. But the other thing that they do is they build biofilm. All infections build biofilm and that biofilm do not underestimate. I think that's one of our biggest challenges because it makes it very, very hard for the drug to get there. And it's a mechanism of protection for that population. And so what will happen is we sterilize the urine and everybody's happy, clinical signs go away. But then with those uroepithelial cells come back and exfoliate back into the bladder, we start the process over again. And one could argue is that recurrence or persistence, and I don't particularly care. What is important to me is to understand that your best crack at getting a UTI is the first time before that organism has the possibility or that population has the possibility of getting into that mucosa of the bladder where it's really, really much harder to be effective with your therapy. Sure. And so what did they do with Willie when his signs came back? So nicely, they made the decision that it was time to culture. They made the decision that even though it was six months ago, in some people's mind, that may be far enough back, um, it was important, and especially because he was a male. So this time they cultured him, and they cultured the urine, and they did have an E. coli that was cultured, and that E. coli was susceptible to a number of drugs, including amoxicillin clodulinic acid. Now, it was resistant to amoxicillin but it was susceptible to moxiclap. Now, this drug was also, this organism was also resistant to a extended spectrum penicillin, ticarcillin, which we don't use that much anymore. So it was resistant to that, but susceptible to moxiclap. So when I look at that, my immediate reaction is, you know, this organism's beginning to develop resistance. Even though it's susceptible to this lower tier drug, amoxiclav, it's producing beta-lactamases. And so that is, to me, another worry. It's a bit of a red flag. And it doesn't mean I won't use amoxiclav in this patient, but it means that I'm going to make sure as much as possible I'm going to use proper dosing regimens when I do this. Is that making sense? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things I'll encourage your audience to do is look at your culture data and see if you can get a feel for what is the state of this organism. Frequently, when we get culture reports and we see all these nice, pretty S's, we think, oh, this is going to be an easy bug to get. But an S simply means that it's possible to get this bug if you use the drug correctly, but it doesn't give us a feel for whether or not this organism is already developing resistance. But when you see something like that, susceptible to amoxiclav, but not amoxicillin or ampicillin, then you know this organism is already beginning to develop some level of resistance. So would it make sense at that point, depending on the organism that we're looking at, to also understand the mechanism of resistance? Like, is it always that pump? No, it's not. And that is such a great question. And so when we tier drugs, you know, I talked about a lower tier versus a higher tier drugs. You know, everybody gets that a big gun that gets these really big bugs like pseudomonas, that's a higher tier drug or a drug that's toxic. That's a higher tier drug. But in my mind, another reason for calling a drug higher tier is the type of resistance it leaves behind should you 
fail therapy. And so for me, the fluorinated quinolones automatically are in a higher tier compared to amoxicillin or amoxiclav, because when resistance develops to amoxicillin or amoxiclav, it's going to be beta-lactamases, and that's within class. It doesn't cross over to the fluorinated quinolones or the aminoglycosides or the potentiate sulfonamides. On the other hand, the fluorinated quinolones, when they cause resistance, it's those efflux pumps again, the ones that we talked about with fluoxetine. And that level of resistance is high, meaning that occurs at very high concentrations, but more problematic, it crosses to multiple classes. So now my bug is now no longer susceptible to fluorinated quinolones, maybe the tetracyclines, potentiate sulfonamides, certainly the beta-lactams. So yes, I always, when I look at a culture report, one of the questions I always ask myself is, if I fail therapy, what kind of resistance am I going to leave behind? And that is part of my decision-making process. So for this patient, if amoxiclav still is susceptible, that probably would be where I would go, simply because if I fail that therapy, I'm going to have someplace else to go. Sure. And so is that what they did for Willie? Did they reach for amoxiclav again? they used a fluorinated quinolone. Now, let me tell you why that's not a bad idea. So if the person choosing this drug was thinking, you know, this organism is probably in that urethelial cell, it's probably protected by a biofilm, the fluorinated quinolones do a better job distributing into getting through all that stuff versus amoxiclav not. So I'm not going to fault, and I wouldn't fault necessarily making the decision at this point going to a fluorinated quinolone. They are great drugs. But the problem is, if you use this drug, I'm going to ask you to use it right. And so what they did end up doing is use the lowest dose on the label. They used five makes per kg. And to me, even though this is in the urine, I think that was a mistake. For example, I'm going to share with you a paper that was published in JVIM about 2012. And that study looked in uncomplicated urinary tract infections in dogs, and they compared amoxiclav for two weeks versus a fluorinated quinolone enrofloxacin for three days. And that study was designed to detect inferiority, which is different than a study that's just looking for a significant difference. So well-designed study. And they demonstrated that three days of Enro was not inferior to two weeks of amoxiclav. But here's the kicker. They used 18 mg per kg, 18 to 20 mg per kg, that high end of the dose. And so for my purposes, that study demonstrates if you get in quick, hit hard and get out quick. That is a great way to approach using that drug. And I think we're finding this with a lot of drugs, right? Like go big or go home rather than these like lower dose prolonged courses. Exactly. So one of the ways to deescalate. So I talk about the three D's for antimicrobial therapy, deescalate use, decontaminate the site, clean it up as much as possible, and then design the dosing regimen. That design in the dosing regimen, certainly it begins with choosing the right drug, and that's where culture helps you. But we've understood now that where we have failed is understanding where that population is, how big is that population, and how much drug is it going to take to get rid of that population. So really designing your dosing regimen to make sure you get enough drug at the site to depopulate as much as possible. And of course, we have the benefit of hindsight here, kind of looking at Willie's case and being able to say, well, maybe we would have changed this or changed that. 
But, you know, utilizing this benefit of hindsight for, for all of our benefit, how would you have changed your approach to this case? I would probably have gone ahead and treated with amoxiclab the first time around, just because it is a lower tier drug. There was evidence of potential efficacy and it would give me someplace else if I needed to go someplace else. I don't think it was, again, a bad decision, like I said, to use the Enro, but if I were going to do that, then I would have used the 20 makes per kick and I probably would have done it for just three days. And then I probably would not have looked again. I would not have cultured the urine unless the patient presented with clinical signs. And I think this is kind of rounding out what we've been angling towards throughout this conversation. But what is something with this discussion that you want to make sure everybody knows about treating UTIs or, you know, perhaps more importantly, not treating UTIs or not treating bacteria in the urine? If I could use Willie, what did happen with Willie is he did respond to the five mix per keg of enrofloxacin within a couple of days, but they recultured him and they actually treated him for two weeks, but they recultured him. He was not showing clinical signs. And when they recultured him, he had E. coli too numerous to count, you know, greater than 10 to the five colony forming units. So they really did not decrease the population. So this patient was asymptomatic. He had E. coli in his urine, but it was multidrug resistant E. coli. The only thing this organism was susceptible to were the aminoglycosides and nitrofurantoin. Now, the temptation here is to go ahead and treat him again. And what would have been chosen is probably the aminoglycosides. So let me point out that that didn't need to happen. He did not need to be treated again because he was asymptomatic. And that's not at all uncommon. An asymptomatic organism frequently drops its virulence genes to become multidrug resistant. That's why they're asymptomatic. And so if you start treating these asymptomatic bacteria, what you're going to be reaching for are these higher tier drugs. And I don't think that we need to do that. So what I'm going to encourage veterinarians to do is don't treat. If you want a culture just to see what's going on, fine, but don't do anything about it and wait till the patient shows clinical signs again, because there's a good possibility that the organism has dropped its resistance genes so it can be virulent again. The nice thing about not treating is that asymptomatic bacteria is gonna stay in the bladder and help prevent other more virulent organisms from moving in. So there's a good reason to not treat, multiple good reasons to not treat. Finally, of course, the toxicity. So by the time this patient's bacteria comes back and they're talking about, do I use the aminoglycoside or not? Finally, a workup was done on this dog because now we have bacteria that is a bacteriuria that is persisting, even though he's been treated twice. So it turns out in the workup, he has polycystic renal disease and he has a high creatinine and a high BUN. So we are never probably going to get rid of his bacteria. This is a good example of why to leave this alone. If it were something that we're going to move up into the kidney, it needs to be a really virulent organism to do that. We don't have clinical signs here. So we actually left him alone. So in answer to your question, I think one, two points that I would make about the approach to treating urinary tract infections is they are difficult to treat. Do not underestimate how complicated they can become. 
if there is recurrence, look for an underlying cause. Because if you do not, then what you're going to be doing is chasing down an organism that ultimately is likely to become multidrug resistant. And if your patient's not showing clinical signs, unless they're mitigating circumstances, then don't treat. And so two things I think I heard you say, I just want to clarify that I heard them correctly, is it sounds like there's a little bit of a trade-off with these bacteria that like you said, if they have these virulence genes, maybe those resistance genes aren't going to be being expressed and vice versa. If they're, if they're acting very virulent, they may be more susceptible. Yeah. Bacteria don't have much genetic material. And so what they end up having to do is get rid of something to acquire something else. Not all the time. So we have actually shown in some of these E. coli causing urinary tract infections in dogs that those that are multidrug resistant have actually dropped their virulence genes. Those that are very virulent, most of them have dropped their resistance genes. And it's not always like that, but it gives some comfort knowing that that's a good reason to not treat these multidrug resistant bugs because frequently they're not making our patients sick. I'm so glad we're having this conversation, Dr. Boots. Like my brain is just exploding here with new information. And, and I, I hope it's as useful to everybody else out there as I feel like it is for me, because this is the exact experience I've had with treating UTIs. The other point that I want to clarify with you is what we're calling clinical signs, because what if we were to do, let's say we did wellness blood work, you know, we don't have placaurea or gross hematuria and things like that, but our, our blood work, our urinalysis comes back and we have rods, E. coli, assuming E. coli, and we have red blood cells and we have white blood cells on that urinalysis. Is that a reason to treat? Without clinical signs, I'm going to strongly discourage you from treating. And clinical signs are not polyuria and polydipsia. Clinical signs are those typical of UTI, hematuria, poikiuria, strangluria, clearly the animal is hurting. There are some mitigating circumstances that I alluded to. For example, our ophthalmologists don't like to have any bacteria in the urine before they do a surgical procedure. And I can live with that. That makes perfect sense. Use a very short course of antibiotics to clear the bladder as this animal is going to surgery. Or patients that are, can are cancer therapy patients, for example, if there is a concern that they're about to nadir out on their white blood cells and we want to get rid of that bacteria in the urine, certainly do that. Let's be discriminatory in those situations. But even diabetes, I get that you are not going to clean that urinary tract infection up, quote unquote, until you get the glucose under control. That's a good reason to not try and treat that because you're not going to be successful. Cushing's disease is another example where you really don't need to treat. The animals are not so immune suppressed that they cannot show clinical signs. Now, I will point out one of our biggest challenges in veterinary medicine are going to be neurologic dogs, dogs that can't express their bladders independently. And that's another whole area where we don't have good recommendations. And I will acknowledge that that's going to be a challenge. And there we start doing things about what can we do to protect the bladder that might help prevent infections from showing up in those patients. And this is where we get into some of those adjunctive treatments as far as protecting the bladder. What are your feelings on some of those? That's a really good question. So anything that we can do to help the bladder protect itself, I think is important. For example, increasing urination simply reduces the number of colony forming units. And it's one of the bladder's most important mechanisms to protect itself. 
So we want to facilitate that as much as possible. But the other things like protecting that bladder mucosa, remember that the bladder mucosa has PGAGs, polysulfate glycosaminoglycans, the same PGAGs that protect the GI tract, that protect cartilage. And so facilitating the bladder with administration of even adequate, so injectable PGAGs, or chondroitin sulfate glucosamines. So any patient that has something wrong with anything, and including, let's say, neurologic patients, helping the bladder by supplying those can be useful. Can we use cranberry juice extract? You know, the data out there does not support that it prevents infections. There is data, not in clinical cases, but in vitro that supports the fact that it helps penetrate biofilm. So it would help an antibiotic penetrate biofilm. It doesn't hurt. So as long as we understand the limitations, then my school of thought is as long as it's a good quality product, you've gotten it from a reputable manufacturer, then go ahead and try. Another good question is probiotics. What role do they play? And I think increasingly we will understand that it's not just replacing the microbiota, but, and this will make your head maybe go a little bit crazy. It turns out the urinary bladder actually has a microbiota. It's one of the many reasons to not use antibiotics indiscriminately. Actually, every organ has a microbiota. And so one of the things that we will learn in the future, hopefully, is that probiotics will support the organ's ability to get rid of these infections, not simply because we're taking care of the GI tract, but because we're taking care of the organ as well. And just to clarify, because I have used Adequin for these nightmare infections before and actually had success with it. It was a really cool case. And I was doing that injectively. I think I did it intramuscularly in that patient. That's what you're talking about. We don't necessarily have to like put this into the bladder or anything. Oh no, I can't get real excited about infusing anything into the bladder. But yeah, adequate, either, either IM or sub-Q, as if you were treating a joint disease, would it be at the very least something that I would do to help support that bladder? Again, there is evidence supporting, but not necessarily confirming that it's potentially useful. Sure, sure. And and yeah, I'm thinking, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I'm thinking of a case and, you know, we were fighting a UTI and that's exactly what we did was adequate and probiotics. I think we did do high dose Enro as well during the last one week of treatment because it was just, we couldn't get it, get the clinical signs to resolve and they went away. So I can say I've done that personally and I've had it work in my, my N of one. That's right. I mean, that's, we're all clinical scientists at heart, right? And not just at heart, but in effect. So kind of rounding it out here at the end, what are some of the concepts you would really like to make sure that we're keeping in mind when it comes to treating UTIs? So if I could go back and just reiterate using my three Ds, deescalate, decontaminate, and design, don't treat asymptomatic bacteria. Okay. So part of de-escalating is not using antibiotics when you don't need to. Second part of de-escalating is getting in quick, hitting hard, but getting out quick. So three to five days. I usually am trying to target three days for an uncomplicated UTI, five to seven if it becomes complicated. You know, we always reach for moxiclav first, but we might think about reaching for moxicillin first because E. coli is not a great beta-lactamase producer, 
But that clavulinic acid is a powerful beta-lactamase inhibitor. And if I can protect that, I would do that. So we might start increasingly think about starting with amoxicillin. And if the patient hasn't responded within one to two days, then reaching for amoxiclav. So those are good ways to de-escalate. Then using the lowest tier drug that you can effectively based on culture data, for example, amoxiclav versus a fluorinate So decontaminate is a little bit harder with the urinary bladder, but we talked about, you know, trying to help the bladder get rid of the colony forming units. And we did talk a little bit about things that might help get rid of biofilm or penetrate biofilm. So that's hard to do for the urinary bladder. The thing that is not hard to do is design a dose and regimen that's appropriate. And this is where the getting quick hit hard becomes so important. And I'm gonna use amoxicillin clavulinic acid. It is a drug I love to pick on. We used to call it a broad spectrum, great antimicrobial. It is not broad spectrum anymore and it's not a great antimicrobial anymore. It is not broad spectrum anymore because we've used it up. It is not a great antimicrobial because now we understand time dependency and concentration dependency and the relationship to efficacy. So amoxicillin clavulinic acid is a time dependent drug. That means you need to have the drug there throughout the dosing regimen. If we use amoxiclav at a convenient dosing regimen, which is Q12 hours, that means I would want that drug to have a half-life of about 12 hours. It's got a one hour half-life. So all of the drug has left the body in three hours. Now it goes to the urine. What I'm gonna tell you though, is when you look at how much amoxiclav it takes to kill E. coli, it takes more than you get in the tissue when you give the recommended dose. The MIC90 for E. coli and amoxiclav is eight micrograms per mil. What you're gonna get in the bloodstream when you give the recommended dose is four micrograms per mil. So you don't even get there, let alone stay there. So my final take home point, maybe final, is classy. The guys that set the rule for culture susceptibility testing, they understand that now. And they have said that we should not use amoxicillin with or without clavulinic acid, ampicillin with or without sulbactam to treat gram negative infections like E. coli, unless it's a UTI. And that's because they understand that amoxicillin does not get concentrations, let alone sustain them to treat anything other than a UTI. But if your patient's renal function is normal and the drug is indeed concentrated in the urine, then you will get high enough concentrations to get into the urine. I still use that drug Q8 hours, even to treat UTIs because these animals are urinating out. I want them to urinate out. I want them to get rid of those bacteria. I'm going to want to put that drug right back in there. And so at least every eight hours for me. And we've talked a lot about amoxiclav and we've talked about Enro and fluorinated quinolones in this conversation. Where can we find more information about appropriate therapies for UTIs, both complicated and uncomplicated? So that's really hard to find. But what I can tell you is the International Society of Companion Animal Infectious Diseases about 10 years ago got together a whole bunch of experts in the field and did a consensus building series of exercises that resulted in publications that are publicly available. They're through open access. And they focused on treating UTIs, 
pyoderma and respiratory diseases, the big three common infections that would cause us to use antibiotics empirically. They're all entitled antimicrobial use guidelines, and I'm an author on all of them. We've just recently updated the urinary tract infection ones. Not everybody agrees with all of the comments or the recommendations, but there was consensus that was drawn by everybody. And I love those because I think they do a great job enhancing or at least focusing on what actions we need to take to facilitate antimicrobial stewardship. Well, as I've said multiple times throughout this talk, this has been a great conversation and I may not sleep for a couple of days after this. Just, I think it might keep me up at night for a while, but I learned so much. And I think some of those concepts that maybe we hear about, but we need just spelled out very deliberately. You did a great job of doing that. So I hope everybody else learns as much as I did from this talk. Dr. Booth, thank you so much. It's been a very much a pleasure being here. So thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. Hopefully we can all take these principles and apply them in treating these UTIs more effectively. I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Booth. She is always a pleasure to have on the podcast. I love talking to her. I want to say thank you to Decra for sponsoring this episode and of course to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this topic, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also follow my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.